In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts. As we forgive, as we forgive our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. It's an honor to have you. It's an encouragement to us, and we hope that we're an encouragement to you also. It is such a blessing to have the two uh, families with us this morning, the Birdwells and the Brosses, and we're thankful for you, and we look forward to worshiping and serving God uh, together with you. Also, those of you that are 62 and older that have signed up for the fellowship meal, you're in for a treat. Uh, the high school group has been working all weekend. They have been working on centerpieces. It's kind of neat to watch guys work on centerpieces, but they've been working on centerpieces. They've been shopping. They've been cooking. Uh, it's really neat to see the young people that they are doing this, and uh, I hope that you realize uh, the, the effort and the energy that they're putting into this, and they look forward to serving you and honoring you today. Uh, those of you that are in the uh, simulcast area, if you can exit as soon as possible, they'll be preparing tables there in that same area immediately following the closing prayer. Also, all parents and all that want to work with our teenagers. Uh, I believe that one of the great successes of our, the lives of our teenagers is the fact that there are so many people that work with them. There are many in the 20-something group. There are many uh, young couples that work with our high school age. There are many of you that have teenagers that are working with them. This afternoon at 3 o'clock here in the building, in the simulcast area, at 3 o'clock this afternoon, uh, one of the great workers in youth work, a uh, great instructor, a great motivator in youth work, David Baker. He is a tremendous youth worker, a tremendous minister. And he will be speaking about the importance and informing us better how to serve our young people. So please, adults, we beg you uh, to help work with our young people, but also to come to this uh, se uh, seminar at 3 o'clock today. A grandfather tells a story of going to visit his grandchildren on Thanksgiving Day. And as he drove up, he saw his oldest grandson, six years old, out playing basketball in the driveway. Right in the midst of a shot, he looked around and he saw his grandparents drive up and he dropped the ball and he ran to them and he opened his granddaddy's door. And his granddaddy stood outside the car, he wrapped his, his arms around his waist and he says, Grandpapa... I'm so glad you're here today. Think how that contrasts to if that little boy would have grabbed the handle of the door and yanked it open, and he would have said, Papa, did you bring me some toys? Are you going to take me to get ice cream? Do you have presents for me? It's been a little while since I've seen you. Which would you rather have as a grandfather? Those loving arms that says, I'm glad you're here, are simply 
a beggar, always wanting something. A little girl came before her father, and she just sat there and stared. And said, honey, what do you want? She said, nothing. She continued to stare, and he says, honey, what do you want? He says, nothing. Finally, after a little while, he says, honey, what do you want? He says, dad, I just want to look at you and love you. What a beautiful thought. To love someone so much that you just want to be in their presence. To love them so much that there is a tremendous amount of comfort brought from knowing that you're together. When we look at prayer in the Scripture, most prayers and even aspects of a single prayer can fall into three categories. When we look at these three categories of prayer, we see communion. And communion is our attention toward God. And that's what we'll look at primarily this morning. Our petitions is when our attitude is toward our own needs as we approach God. And intercession is when our attention is toward the needs of others as we take their needs before God. And I don't want for you to misunderstand this morning. All of these are so very important, and I wouldn't say that one is more important than the other because the Lord doesn't, and the Lord asks us to do all of these things. But this morning, I want to ask you, how well do you do a simple communion with God in prayer? You know, many of us do very well at giving God our petitions. Lord, please be with me as... We do very well, oftentimes, in intercessions. When we pass out prayer requests, so oftentimes in our classes, we have prayer requests, and so oftentimes those requests are made on behalf of another person. And that's wonderful. That's good. But have you noticed many times we struggle in making our communion with God? Many times we immediately jump to the request, or to the thanksgiving, etc. As we look at communion, I want you to think about just as where we're going this morning, what I hope that we'll understand better when this lesson is over. Here's what communion can do. It is an action of seeking God's glory. It is an action of seeking God's glory. It'll produce a heart of humility. It will make within us an attitude of complete submission so that we'll truly say, I want to follow that God of whom I worship and serve, the Almighty God. And it will literally become a line of connection where we believe that that is something that we have to have to maintain that relationship with God. This morning, do you believe that? If someone told you for the next 30 days, as they told Daniel about prayer, what if they told you specifically, for the next 30 days, you cannot praise God in prayer? For the next 30 days, you cannot praise God in song. Would you believe that there is a vital line of communication of which you would be missing that you absolutely could not live without? I hope we all recognize the importance of communion. As we look at this... I'm reminded of the Arabian proverb that says, Get closer to the seller of purple if you of perfume if you would be fragrant. What do you think would change in your life if you got closer to the Almighty, compassionate, loving, 
God. What do you think would change in your life if you just said, Lord, I just want to be with you. Lord, I'm so glad that I'm in your presence. Lord, I thank you for your greatness. We've just had so capably read for us what many call the Lord's Prayer. And interesting enough, it is oftentimes the prayer that people will memorize and utter word for word. Interesting enough, it is one that oftentimes crowds will say together. And if they're truly meaning that, that's fine. But the irony is, this prayer was taught as a manner to pray to break people from the habit of vain repetitions. As a matter of fact, if we read the verses above in Matthew the 6th chapter and verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And then in verse 9 he says, In this manner therefore pray. And so he's not saying, memorize and pray this prayer. He's saying, I want to give you an example. In other words, I want to give you a sample prayer. A prayer that's short. A prayer that's spontaneous. A prayer that spends the first third of the prayer praising and communion with God. He's wanting us to learn how important it is. Let's think about the simple phrases. And by no means am I suggesting to you, or is Jesus suggesting here, that this is the only way for us to praise God. This is just a sample. This is an example of what it could be. But notice as this prayer begins, He says, Our Father in heaven, how would be thy name? All the ways He could have addressed God. He could have said, Our Creator. And many times we may think, well, the reason he called him Father was because he is the creator of mankind. He's not the creator of Jesus. And so when he says our Father, the emphasis is not upon, and I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but the emphasis is not upon a machine that creates something. And well, he's our creator, so we have to praise him. The emphasis when Jesus teaches to pray is upon the relationship with a Father. Not just God but God the Father. It goes back to where Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John the third chapter. He told him that to enter the kingdom of heaven, in other words, to be in the presence of God, he would have to be born again. It goes back to Romans the eighth chapter where if they were led by the Spirit, they could have the adoption of the Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father! God wants us to see Him as our Father. God wants us to see Him as the one when we make mistakes and we stray. He's not the one that's throwing rocks at us and saying, I knew you couldn't live the life. He's the one that has His arms open as a father looking down the road for the son to return so that He can put His arms around Him, kiss His neck, put the robe upon His back, rings upon His fingers, shoes upon His feet, and kill the fatted calf. Why? Because the father said, we're celebrating because the Son has come home. Jesus, teach us a manner of prayer. Jesus would say, see God as your Father, our Father in heaven. Now, translating this word in heaven is not necessarily easy to do in one sense because there's three areas that this word refers to in the Scriptures, and we have to look to the context to see what is meant. 
And Jeremiah, he would use this same idea of the birds in the, what we would call sky, but he says in the heavens. The psalmist would write many times of the second heavens as he would write of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Paul would write about the opportunity in 2 Corinthians 12 to see into the third heaven, also called in that passage paradise. Well, which heaven does he mean here? Most would probably immediately say, well, we know that he's referring to the heaven that is the place where God dwells. And I couldn't disagree with that. You remember when Stephen was being stoned, he looked up and he saw Christ on the right-hand side of God up in the heaven. And so I don't mean to try to splice hairs here to make things complicated, but I would for application purposes. I'd like for you to think with me along these lines. And that is, it could be that this should be translated in a way to refer to all three heavens. It could be that this could be translated, Our Father in the heavens. Because you name a place that God is not. You name a place where God did not create. As a matter of fact, look to the next slide as we look in Matthew. I want to remind you of Matthew, the 10th chapter, and verse 29. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, and 29, is speaking of the birds that would fly in the first heavens in the sky. And notice what he says in Matthew 10 and 29. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. Now, if you'll notice, that verse is on your screen again the second time. Except the second time, it's in the King James translation. I want to read to you, for those of you that can't see the screen, we just read about your Father's will. In other words, the sparrow falls to the ground, and your Father knows about it. The idea of Father's knowledge. But notice as we read from the King James here, and would also be the New American Standard, the way it would translate it, it's similar here. In 10 and 29, he'd say, Are not two sparrows sold for a fathering, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your Father. Now, if, if we want to... Sp- be technical here, that's the right translation. The translators of the NIV and the New King James thought that it would add clarity if they added something about the Father's will or the Father's knowledge. And I by no means would say that that's wrong to do. Maybe it did add something, but here I believe that they're adding something might take away from what Jesus was literally saying. In other words, if we leave it just as it is written, the sparrow is not going to fall to the ground and die without the Father there holding it as it dies. You see, he's not just saying the Father knows. He's saying it's not going to happen without the Father. The Father's there. Friends, the Lord is everywhere. The Almighty God is in the third heavens, in the second heavens, in the first heaven. What a blessing it is to be able to pray to a Father that's in our presence. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount again. And notice he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we define hallowed, we see that that would be to sanctify, to set apart. That's the very same word 
that's translated oftentimes for us being set apart for holy service. It's the idea, it's the very same word in John 17 and 17 where he says, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, some of you have probably already jumped ahead on me and said, wait a minute, we don't need to pray for God to be sanctified. I know that's not what this means, and you're right. God is already set apart. God is already holy. And so what does he mean when he uses this term to describe God? He's using this term to mentally recognize the fact that God deserves reverence because he's holy. God deserves our respect because he's holy. In other words, it's to venerate God for all that He is. And so He says, How would be Thy name? Now, if time will permit, we will close this morning by even looking at another verse out of Psalms where the psalmist was rebuking enemies because they used the Lord's name in vain. It really is a question for each of us is, do we believe that the Lord's name is hallowed? Do we believe that it's holy? Do we believe that it's to be treated with reverence? Just yesterday, I was sitting and I heard a woman say, Oh Lord, well you know how it is. I doubt And that woman was in a pretty religious environment. I doubt that woman prays prayers of praise very often. I'm probably not going to see any reason to adore the name that I have just used in vain all day long. Maybe that's one reason why we struggle with praise is because we really don't believe God's worthy of our praise. Instead, we'll just throw His name around as a common everyday household word. And then when we want something, we'll give Him a list of requests as if He's an errand boy for us or some kind of genie in a bottle. Can I truly learn... And can I truly pray after the manner that Jesus prays here? When He sees God as a Father, and His name apart from all other names, a Father that is everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. And notice, in the next three phrases, it might frustrate some of us if we're not accustomed to praying prayers of praise It might frustrate us because he's not asking for something. He's not asking on behalf of someone else. Let's notice these next three phrases. Notice in verse 10 he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Somebody might hear that and say, well, why pray that? He's not asking for the kingdom to come because this was before the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. A few chapters in the midway through Matthew, Jesus will turn to Peter and he speaks of the kingdom and tells him that he'll give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In Acts 2, he takes those keys and he unlocks the entrance way for all individuals that want to become a part of the kingdom of God, have access to the kingdom. And so he's praying 
about the fact that it will be a certain rule for God. In other words, there's not any doubt in Jesus' mind that He will succeed in bringing His kingdom to this earth. But notice He said, Your will be done. He's not asking. He's stating it as a powerful fact. There's no will that can conquer the will of God. His will will be done. And it is an eternal power. In other words, His will is not limited just to this earth, but even as it is in heaven. Because even the heavenly host bows to the will of God. Now as we consider this, I'd like for you to think about, and you might want to be turning to to Isaiah the 6th chapter. What benefit does it do for you and I to see God? What benefit does it do for us to pray to God and praise Him for His power, for His presence, and for His knowledge? We could take a few minutes to look at just a few stories And the sad thing is we don't have time to really develop any of these stories, so I hope we accomplish something in looking at these quickly. But I want you to see how lives changed when lives saw God. In Isaiah, the sixth chapter, God is on the throne, high and lifted up in the vision that Isaiah sees at this point. He sees the robe filling the room of which is the robe of God. He sees that great throne that He is on. He sees God. And then he hears the praises as the seraphims around say, Holy, 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 the Lord is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's in this setting that he recognizes how awesome God is and how sinful that He is, and he cries out that He's ruined. The seraphims symbolically bring over a coal to purify his life. And it's there that the Lord asks someone to go for him, And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. What happened in this vision? Simply stated, Isaiah began to see God for whom God is. And the result, the result was that he sought cleansing and that he longed to be in service to God. Look back with, you, with me, if you will, to Job. Job, the 38th chapter, is where we'll begin scanning some things in just a moment. The story of Job is a powerful story that tells us about the grief and death and the struggles that man goes through on this earth and the loss of loved ones. He was the richest man of the East, and all of his possessions were destroyed or stolen in one day's time. His ten children died. After that, Balls came upon his body from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, and he sat in ashes, scraping himself with broken pottery. Seven friends come by, and after seven days of comforting him in silence, they begin to speak and to blame him over and over for the wrong that he must have done. His wife urges him to curse God and die, and even friends gather around to give a scornful eye to look upon him. Even children will not have anything to do with him. At the end of all of these speeches where his friends were beating him up verbally, God breaks the silence. Now I want you to note this. If someone says Job can bring up more questions than we can answer, I'd have to agree with that. But do not overlook 
the answers that Job does give us. What is God going to do when He breaks the silence? Is He going to sit down and say, Job, let's begin and let me explain to you why I allowed you to become a man in deep poverty now. Let me explain to you why I let you lose all of your riches. Let me explain to you why I allowed ten children to die. Let me explain to you why I took away your physical health. You know, I have to admit to you that if after all of that, I would expect God to give some very direct answers to those kind of questions. But you know what God does? In other words, God says, Job, I think to help you through this time, you need to see me. That's right. You need to see me. And so in 38, he tells him to stand up like a man. One is translated as stand up like a hero. In other words, the idea here, God is not asking him to stand up so that he can take his knees out from and under him. He's not doing this to humiliate him. He's doing this to help Job at this point. God loves Job. He's not there to beat up Job. And so what does he do? Because he wants to help Job, he says, stand up and let me ask you some questions. And we can scan some. In 38, the fourth verse, he says, where were you when the foundations of the earth were formed? And then in verse 5, who determined the measurements? Can you imagine? Job saying, I don't know how big the earth is. I don't know where I was at the beginning. God, the only answer to that is you. You're the only one that knows about the foundation. You're the only one that knows the measurements of the earth. And look in verse 8. Who shut the doors of the sea? In other words, who contained the sea? Who made it so that water didn't just cover the whole earth? God, you're the only one that knows that. We can skip down in 29. Where does ice come from that falls from heaven? Where does the frost come from? Job, did you give birth to that? No, God, you're the only one that did that. What about the constellations? What about the Pleiades? Or what about the bear with her cubs? Are you the one that brought those stars together to form those constellations? And of course the answer is no, God, you did that. What if we skip down into the 39th chapter in 19? Did you give strength to the horse? Did you put thunder in his neck? No, God, I can't make a horse. What about the hawk? Later on in that same chapter he says, did you teach the hawk how to fly? Did you teach the, the eagle to build its nest up high? No, God, I can't, I can't fly. I can't teach an eagle how to build a nest. What's the point? Question after question after question. Job had to say, God, it's you. You're the one. And that brings us to the 42nd chapter in the 42nd chapter, Job begins answering at the beginning of that chapter. And notice verse 3 when he says, You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? See, he really didn't have enough knowledge to answer this. But notice what he says, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. What was Job's summary? Job's summary was, God, now that I see you greater, I realize that I have no business questioning you because your knowledge is so great, your power is so great, your presence is so great. God, I trust you. Physically, as a man, he didn't understand why these losses took place. He didn't understand why he suffered this sickness. But spiritually, he saw God 
and said, that's enough said. I trust you. Peter did the same thing in a sense in a very short story in Luke the fifth chapter. And this is where Peter was out fishing all night. Jesus asked him as they come back in to take him on the boat so he can speak to the crowd. At the end of speaking to the crowd, Jesus asked him to go out and cast his nets. Peter hadn't caught anything all night, but he says, because at your word I will do it. In other words, there was submission there. What did he do? He went out, he cast the nets, he began to catch so many fish that it filled up his boat. He had to call for his partners, filled up their boat to the point that both boats are about to sink. At this point, instead of celebrating the catch, he fell down on his knees and he said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O God. He told him to rise up and to no longer be afraid that from now on, instead of fishing for fish, now he can fish for men. And Peter, James, and John, they forsook their nets and they followed Jesus. What happened in that story? Peter finally saw Jesus. He saw His power. He saw someone worth giving his life fully to. He saw someone worth making every sacrifice in the world for. For the first time in his life, Peter saw Jesus to that degree. And when he did, he was ready to be his. Let's close this morning in Psalms 139. And I hope, I hope that you will study this passage. I really mean that when I say this. I hope everybody here, because we don't have time to study it this morning, but please make you a note on your hand. Put you a bookmark in your Bible. Go back and read this today or tomorrow and pray part of this Scripture. This is one of the most beautiful praise passages in all of the Bible. You say, you know, I'd love to pray prayers of praise, but I don't really know how to offer those prayers of praise. Begin praying some of the verses here from the depths of your heart. Notice as he speaks of the omniscience of God. Look in Psalms 139, verse 1. Oh Lord, You have searched me and know me. You know my setting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with me all my ways. And there's not a word on my tongue. But behold, O oh Lord, You know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before. You laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You see how he's not asking God for anything here? In this song that he's writing, he's just praising God for the great knowledge that he has. In the following verses, notice the presence of God. Verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now notice these next two verses as we see a part of the power of God. For you formed me inward, my inward parts, and you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He offers several other verses of praise. Notice as we go to 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Notice this phrase. Your enemies take your name in vain. 
You see, he's choosing sides here, and he's simply making a statement to God. He's not asking a request per se. He's simply stating to God, God, I've chosen you. And I hate it when people do not choose you. I despise the fact that there are enemies of yours. Lord, I hate to hear the enemy use your name in vain. I hope you can say that. It's not right for a faithful Christian to be able to sit in the presence of someone that hears God's name be used in vain and then not stir some emotion. We have to choose our sides. How can the psalmist come to this point of choosing his side? Well, if we read the previous 18 verses, he knows God. When he knows and sees the power of God, he knows who he wants to serve. And then in 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. This is really the first time he's asked something of God here. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, this morning, as we examine prayer, communion with God, I hope that all of us, all of us, love being in the presence of God in prayer. I hope we tell Him that. I hope we praise Him for His power, for His knowledge, and for His presence. Let's make sure that we build those lines of communications now. Lines that we long one day to become the reality where we can sit in the presence of God for an eternity. If you're not a child of God, you're missing the greatest life that there is to be lived. The Almighty invites you into His family. He wants to adopt you. If you believe and are willing to repent of sins and confess before me and won't you be baptized for the remission of those sins. If you have been baptized and you've allowed sin to separate you from God again, won't you come back to Him? The Lord wants us to confess our sins and pray forgiveness. A wonderful petition and intercession that the church can make on your part. If we can help you in any way, it comes with staying as we sing.